Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of cycling performance. Today, a Q&A episode, we're sitting down with Daniel Matheny of Matheny Endurance. He's a coach, he is a 24-hour and 12-hour mountain bike champion, he's an endurance athlete, and he's got some wisdom that he'd like to share with us today. We're taking on, first, a very complex subject, coaching junior athletes, and we'll be discussing everything from building aerobic base in a healthy manner to dealing with those overbearing parents out there. Oops, did I say that? We'll also take on a very interesting question on the base intensity relationship. We'll discuss how long aerobic rides need to be to get benefits, and then we'll turn to a question on heart arrhythmias and specifically PVCs, how to detect them, if WHOOP can detect them, and are they a concern? Finally, we address the potential for cumulative effects of supplements. Uh, can you have chocolate and beets together to make a super supplement, so to speak? All that and much more today on Fast Talk. Let's make you fast. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Chris. What's the most interesting topic on the Fast Talk forum right now? That's actually pretty tough to say. There's some really good conversations that I've been enjoying, and some that, frankly, I don't want to weigh into until I've gone and done some research. Uh, we got a pretty cool conversation on nasal breathing exercises. Does nasal breathing help long-term oxygen uptake? We did an episode on breathing and touched on that, but really didn't get a dive deep. So great to see that happening in the forum. Ryan and I did that 20-minute FTP test, and we're getting a whole bunch of questions about how to read that. And one that I really want to kind of dive into is this new one about be able to detect your aerobic threshold with heart rate variability. That's the one I need to dig into the research. Might even lead to an episode. Well, listeners, if you like what you hear, you can join the smartest forum in cycling for free. Starting this week, all members of Fast Talk Laboratories get access to our podcast forum. Sign up now at FastTalkLabs.com. Daniel, welcome to Fast Talk. Thanks for having me on, guys. Uh, tell us a little bit about your background. You are the owner of Matheny Endurance. You've had a 20-plus year career in coaching. What, what's the, been the focus of that time for you as a coach? Oh man, it's uh, it's one of those things where I found my path um, in college and couldn't see myself doing anything else besides digging into the details of exercise science and nutrition and that kind of stuff. And um, I've just been passionate about it this whole time. So kind of made a transition from being a fitness junkie and managing YMCA's and their classes to health consulting on the wellness side of things for corporate. And then ended up, you know, moving from the southeast of Nashville out to Colorado and have been out here for about 15 years now, um, working with CTS and USA Cycling, the Olympic Training Center, um, had some unique experience going overseas with uh, national teams over in Africa and even just some extent doing some coaching, long, long stint coaching with outrigger paddlers even. So just uh, various, various ways to get involved and stay involved with that. And even just as probably the pushing uh, force behind it was uh, being an endurance athlete myself and wanting to understand it. It was a way to, in college, to apply everything personally. So that's when I got my, my pro license in college and raced collegiately um, and then have been doing that since then and uh, 
resulted in being a couple time national champ on the mountain bike for 24 hour and marathon and a couple runners up. So it's been on the docket to go back and get that as a master's athlete now. Nice. And, and it turns out that you and I have a little bit of a history in racing. Um, didn't realize it at the time when we invited you on the show, but it turns out that we rode together for uh, countless hours out in the Kansas plains in the wind, in the heat. I think it was 2013. We, the, the race formerly known as DK 200, we were in a group, the leading group for, yeah, six, seven hours together. So, oh yeah, that was fun. (laughs) Fun in a sick way. I guess we have a, we're all, we're all kind of odd and fun until it wasn't. Yeah. Let's get into some questions, shall we? This first question we have pertains to coaching juniors and I'm not sure how many juniors are out there listening, but I'm sure we have a lot of parents, a lot of parents who um, want to help their kids participate in endurance sports. So I, hopefully this is a very helpful discussion. It's a, it's an interesting topic. It's a complex topic. It's, uh, I guess you could say, even a controversial topic at times. So let me read this question now. And it's, it is a long question, but it gives you the context here. My daughter is 17 years old and a first-year junior. She's raced competitively since age 9 and has had a fairly successful youth racing career. Her coach, which she began working with uh, over a year ago, wants her to follow an 8-week base training where she keeps heart rate low, up to about 170 beats per minute max, and cadence very high. Interval targets are stipulated in heart rate and cadence. There is some variety in the workouts, including one with low cadence intervals, but heart rate is always capped. She's done three rides like this so far, and they are extremely low intensity. For example, her average power is around or slightly below 50% of FTP, with heart rate mostly in the 130 to 170 range, so that's about 60 to 80% of her max. He expects that these rides will help her train her heart, reduce resting pulse, and to transport more, more CO2 per beat, which will eventually help her increase her overall performance. While I understand the concept and believe that endurance rides do have those effects, it throws me off that the rides are that low in terms of power, TSS, and so forth. And not that this metric matters, but just to further illustrate it, whereas she would normally do an easy endurance ride on a city loop with stop signs, etc., at 26 to 27 kilometers per hour, she's now moving 22 to 23 kilometers per hour. So, Big question here. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the approach. Will this have a negative impact on her in other areas? Is this not something that will naturally develop on its own as she gets older? So big topic, Daniel. I know you've coached a lot of juniors in your time. What would be your initial thoughts here after reading or hearing this question? Yeah, I mean, that's a long question, but the background is necessary. So is it going to have a negative impact on, on her in other areas being one part of the question? And is it going to naturally develop, uh, later on? So the negative impact, I would say no, because from the metabolic and physiological testing I've done, even if you go from your resting VO2 max, when everybody's just sitting around up to that, what's considered zone two in the five zone model, or even zone one from the polarized stuff, you're getting most of the way up to, the working levels that's necessary to cause the adaptive signal. So the thing is, if he's noticing or she's noticing that the speeds are low, the power output, and even some of the TSS numbers that she's noting, it may be that it's actually more 
a necessity than what they even identify because coaching juniors, they're typically, uh, I relate them to bottle rockets because they light the fuse and typically go out of the gate pretty hot and then they fade off. And so that's, they, they typically resort to their um, utilizing their anaerobic capacity and their, you know, relatively youth VO2 maxes, and then they fade off. And so if, if the juniors are seeing these low TSS points and intensity factors for these uh, heart rate and cadence prescribed rides, it usually means that there may be a deficit there because typically with improved aerobic conditioning and at that basal level, you can still start seeing a better and better output and speed for even a zone two or, or a low intensity ride. And so that may be a necessity for her to be working on because of that. And so I'd say there's not really a negative impact on other areas, especially considering the current state of affairs with um, an unknown race season, possibly like we had last year, I would say it's better to develop that resiliency and durability as an endurance athlete, and then be able to turn up the specificity when necessary versus um, burning the fuse and, and going a little bit deep early on uh, when it's not really necessary. So that's, that's the first part of it. Yeah. Um, yeah before you jump into the second part, let's, let's get thoughts from Ryan and Trevor here. Ryan, do you want to, do you have some some thoughts bottle rocket is a perfect uh you know way to describe juniors they, they just yeah they tend to ride hard if they don't have some kind of control that they're exerting or they have some kind of guideline the description in here really does sound like a well thought out approach for the, you know i don't know how long this phase is but it sounds like you know this coach is slowing the junior down teaching them that consistency and really starting to learn some of the basics of training can you overdo it sure i mean you can do this for too so long that then you start to feel s slow trevor i know you have some thoughts well i do particularly because i know this athlete i actually worked a little bit with her so we'll, we'll let this remain anonymous uh but certainly when i was working with her what i saw was exactly what we're talking about which was she was all intensity all the time mm -hmm. and was missing that base aerobic endurance that sustainability the repeatability uh, that part of her engine just really wasn't there. It was interesting because her father was saying, well, her, her intensity factor is around 0 0.6 to 0 0.65 with this new protocol. Talked about, well, she used to ride at 26, 27 kilometers an hour. Now she's riding at 22, 23. And says on a city loop, this is in Toronto. I can tell you to average 27 kilometers an hour in Toronto, you're going hard. It's just all acceleration out of all the stop signs or stop lights. And then, yeah. When I'm doing an easy ride in Toronto, what I would call my base aerobic ride, I'm averaging 22 kilometers an hour. And this is a 17-year-old junior. She should not be going faster than me. So my feedback to him was, I fully agree with what your coach is trying to do. She needs to slow down. She needs to do this work. My only feedback is I think his prescription's too hard. I was thinking the same thing because when I saw up to 80%, that is actually of max heart rate. That is really high. And that doesn't fall into that zone one as based on percentages of kind of the polarized model. Like that's well above. We could go in a lot of different directions with a discussion about how to coach, how to properly coach juniors. A couple questions come to my mind. Um, and I don't know if this is going to bog down the conversation or not, but females versus male junior athletes do you want do they develop at different rates such that you could you can push one or the other group more or less 
you have to feel them out individually. Been able to work on a lot of the same camps that 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 Daniel's worked on, you know, through USIC, and I think we've we've seen a lot of athletes come through that pathway. Some juniors, I think, in general, the female athletes that I've worked with over the years that have come through tend to be more, you know, ready for structured training. They're they're more mature, you know, in general. And uh, you know, I can say after the rides, I mean, you know, they're kids. They're gonna they're gonna have fun. I mean there's definitely more of a maturity level with the females than I see with some, with most of the males, but there are those male juniors that, that are at that level to, to take this on, you know? So I think really just feeling them out individually is, has been sort of my approach. Generally girls go through puberty before boys. Um, there is research and, and evidence showing that building that aerobic engine Building your endurance really doesn't matter until after you go through puberty because it's just not something you have as a as a child. Um, so doing big aerobic rides beforehand doesn't really matter. Once once they've gone through puberty, then you can start working that that engine. You know, my one bit of feedback on juniors is it is somewhat easy to get a junior athlete to a very competitive level. And there are coaches out there who take advantage of this, particularly on the track. So they love to work with junior athletes on the track, get them very competitive very quickly because you just do a ton of high-intensity work and then they're really strong. My experience is those athletes tend to burn out. And if you're looking at a a longer career, um, if they want to do this as an adult, that's not always the best approach. And, And worse, you see those athletes, as soon as they enter the U23 ranks and go and start racing, more seasoned adults who have been training right, they get destroyed and it can be very hard on them. So I personally, when I work with juniors, don't take that easy approach to get quick results with them and really say, this is the time to build that engine, to build the aerobic side. So you you probably get beat by those juniors who are taking the easy approach as a junior, but you're going to be far more prepared when you get into the actual U23 and then the the elite ranks to be able to handle the race and to be to be competitive. I think you're I think Ryan and you're both spot on. Like it's one of those things where there's a quick progression at first, um, almost like the low hanging fruit and they've got such enthusiasm and they recover so quickly with age that the gains are made relatively quickly. And if, you know, in those years of borderline kind of puberty and stuff like that, they're still up and coming. And then once they can make those, you know, get those adaptive signals from the aerobic work, then they can start benefiting. But a lot of times they just want to go fast. And if they skip that phase, um, like in this example, then there's a, the way I understand the metabolism that if you're not aerobically fit, then the high intensity work won't cycle back through the energy systems to process the lactate as it's being produced as a fuel source and those kinds of things. So the rate limiting factor is their aerobic functioning, not necessarily their high end functioning. So if they skip that, then they're, they're going to miss one of the phases of recovering. And so I've seen that as well, like basically people to get really fast, but then they haven't done the correct fundamental work. And then they just kind of like feel like they're beating their head against a wall. One other thing that I just want to mention, there was a part of this email that Chris cut out, uh, but I think it's relevant to what we're talking about. The initial reason this email was sent is because this athlete, she's 17 and she's starting to have back problems. And that's what happens. This is a bit of an extreme case of an athlete who is doing a ton of high intensity all the time, hasn't built her, her stamina, hasn't built her endurance, 
She isn't doing much off the bike work. And you're seeing her at 17 starting to have issues that you would normally see in, in, a, in a master's athlete. And that's a sign of the, there being an imbalance here and the dangers of just the all intensity all the time. I wanted to simplify this to kind of have a, open the door for more general discussion. And I want to open a can of worms, maybe. I think it's actually important. Um, I was part of a, a bone density study personally as a mountain biker that I was, I referred athletes to it. And this is when Ryan and I worked at CTS and they were like, oh yeah, we'll test you in this thing because you're not going to qualify because you ride mountain bikes, you strength train, you lift, you run all this stuff. And uh, actually qualified as a, on the spectrum of bone density even as a 20 something year old at the time. And I think that's important because going back to Ryan's point and Trevor's point is the kind of development of a general youth athlete that has a bandwidth of capabilities as an athlete, but not as a specific cyclist. So this person being 17, they're on the verge where yes, they need to start specifying, but I would, I would question what she's done before this to prepare herself as a general athlete, because if you specialize too early, then you actually don't have all the other planes of movement and just general sport fitness. So if, if the, it sounds like that, and this may open a can of worms too, but it sounds like the father is, is pushing for this and wants her to excel as a cyclist. And if that's been the case in the previous years and she hasn't developed just general athletic ability, and then goes into cycling, she's going to be going, like Trevor said, as a um, injured athlete at age 17. And that's not something you would want to develop as a, as a youth athlete, because they're going to basically be thrown against the wall, like an egg and crack whenever they hit the ranks of U23. And so that would be the question of like, even uh, some of the points I kind of noted whenever I read through this for, is it fun for her? What are the other things she's doing as an athlete? Because if she's, you know, she's living in Toronto, why, why is she not doing something other like cross training for her base work? Because she could say, go out for, you know, an hour run or something like that with some strength training, get, you know, 60 or 90 minutes of com combined work from concurrent training on some of these days versus riding in the cold or something like that. And it sounds like she's being uh, not necessarily pushed, but if it's base work in the winter or the off season, like maybe there's something some other general fitness that can then be transferred into specific fitness later uh, versus just going straight into cycling only. The parent um, role here, maybe asking a more general question so we're not picking on anybody as an individual. Ryan, uh, Daniel, you've coached so many juniors in your life. Would you encourage juniors to not have parents as coaches or, or, or do you see successful cases there? What, what, what are your thoughts around the, the, that question of parents being uh, coaches and seeing probably some parents that push way too hard? I don't think a parent should be the coach. I think the parent should be part of the team. And I think if there, if there should be a coach, there's someone who has, you know, they don't have that familial sort of interest you know they're there as a coach but I think I've seen athletes um, that have had very supportive parents and they also have their coaches and I think that works well but yeah when the parent tries to sort of live out their cycling dreams through the kid a little bit 
you know, and they try to just impose their training thoughts and, and methodology on the child, I think that's the problem, you know, and if they don't play nicely with the coach, you know, that, that obviously happens too. But yeah, I think it should be more thought of as the team, the coach is there to develop the overall plan with the input from the kid. The parents can certainly have input, but I think it should all be a very collaborative approach. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's one of those things where they have to have a vested interest. I've seen it from the standpoint of where I've coached both, uh, parent and child in a relationship before. Um, and it, it, it's been collaborative where they don't want to have too much, but I think it's good to have, you know, almost like that third party mediator as the coach, because that coach athlete relationship, it's different for every coach and athlete and that coach parent athlete relationship then creates a confusion of where their role stands in the, in that matrix. So I feel like it could get confusing for the child of, is, is this my parent or is this my coach talking to me? So having that disconnect from that, um, that family member is sometimes good. I've have seen some good coaches as parents because they understand it, but they have to have unique, uh, kind of the, the heart of a teacher mentality a little bit versus actually like, you know, forcing people to do stuff. So if I see something that starts to go over the edge of, um, a little bit more forceful or like, you know, the, the screaming sideline parent of like, <laughs> they want to live vicariously through their kids is, is not the ideal thing. Like they've got to let them find it. And usually if they, if they do push too hard, then they, the kids end up pulling back anyways and, and engaging in something different and it defeats the purpose from what's a parent intent, parent's intent was. Yeah. Trevor, I'm going to get myself in trouble here, but I have a friend who mostly coaches junior athletes and he once very frustrated, lamented to me, you don't coach junior athletes, their parents coach them. And then you get blamed for when they don't go to the tour de France. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. If you are a, a, a parent of a junior, you know, the best thing you can do is find your child, a good coach, and then get out of the way because there is that huge temptation as you were just talking about to, you want to see results you want to see the proof that your child is the best you want to see them improving they say this about every sport that it takes 10 years to reach your peak but this is particularly true in endurance sports which is a these physiological systems take a long time to develop and if you're trying to force a 14 or 15 year old to be the best within a year you're going to go down this very dangerous, high intensity all the time, drive the kid route, which actually isn't going to develop them well in the long run. And you need that coach who can see the, 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 the long term, see the big picture and let them develop the athlete and be OK with the fact that your kid is going to develop a little slower, but ultimately be better for it. Parents have mixed intentions. Some have good, some have arguably bad intentions a lot of the times uh, the when you put though that's that um parent into the competitive scenario their good intentions uh head in the wrong directions like they just want their kid to do well right but the means to an end it just gets confusing so i i hear what you're saying trevor i hear what you ryan and daniel are saying as well it sounds like uh getting out of the way and letting the coach do what a coach does best, especially in a in an age group where they have specific requirements beyond what you might have with uh, adults is the is the best. So we should probably have an entire episode on coaching juniors. We we, we could go on and on and on about this topic. Daniel, did you have a closing closing remark before we move on to the next question? 
Yeah, I kind of wanted to turn it away from the the parent side of things and actually like the concept of if I prescribe a workout or give somebody a workout, whether it's a junior or somebody else, and if I don't know the goal and I can't transpose that goal into what they can understand, then I, it shouldn't be there on their training plan and the, the athlete shouldn't be doing it. So one of the things with this is like, the, some notes I made were regarding the, some coaching tips or some ways to engage the athlete, because there's certain workouts, whether they're ergometer workouts in the winter, just to have some entertainment. But if that entertainment then results in being engaged in the workout, then the end result is the outcome that the coach wants and the athlete wants. So there's a mini, there's a mini short, mini long-term is what, like what Trevor was talking about of like, can the, can the athlete see what the outcome desired outcome is? And just the, the mesocycle, like say, are we looking at a three week, four week block of this? Is it a two month block? What it, whatever may be as a duration of a progression and communicating that to the athlete as well as making some of the workouts fun. And so, you know, one of those is, is uh, one thing they noticed was it's cadence and heart rate based for these prescriptions. And so if the, if the athlete has typically had a lower uh, cadence, say they're a mountain bike athlete or they're riding through the city and it's a lot of start stop from these intersections, then they may not be used to the high cadence. And so that may take their heart rate higher because they're not used to that higher RPM. Thus, they're getting a lower power output and feeling like they're going slow because they're just not used to that because of the additional cardiovascular strain that that increased RPMs makes. So that could be something to say, like, what is your normal cadence now? And then let's try to progress up from there. Like let's, if it's 80 RPMs on an average ride, let's try to go to 85 or 90. And they may thinking like high RPM, they may be spinning their brains out at hundred, 110. So we don't know that. So that would be one thing to look at from a coaching perspective. And then some of the coaching tips would be, you know, maybe this athlete can, what I call like push the edge or basically ramp within their, their uh, aerobic range and make them feel like they're playing a little bit of a game because with juniors and with anybody, if it's fun, they're going to be more engaged. And if they just think I'm doing a two hour ride at this certain heart rate, they're going to get bored. But if you basically say, okay, ride in within your uh, aerobic range, but not right at the top of it, because that doesn't give you anywhere to go. But as, as transitions and terrain or, you know, city blocks, whatever it may be, choose some uh, landmarks, whether it be a telephone pole or buildings or something like that, and increase your output or your perceived effort or just pressure on the pedals. If she's not pushing with power, and try to increase it where you see your heart rate kind of go up to the top of your, your zone two range. And I wouldn't say up to 80%, but maybe it's between 65 and 75% or something like that. But then when you get to that point, then not necessarily stop pedaling, but ease off a little bit. So then you see your heart rate come back down. So then she can actually play with working within that range and having a little bit of a micro focus instead of it being just such a, I've got to check off this long ride. And if you can break it up like that, she may be more engaged and have a little bit more fun in that process than if, if it's actually, um, just knock out the whole duration, if that makes sense. Absolutely. I like that. It's great advice. Yeah. The fourth point was there was nothing mentioned on the relationship to the duration she was doing these low intensity rides. So, but with, with the intensity and duration being inversely related, when one goes up, the other has to go down and vice versa with training. We don't know what she was coming off of. So if her, if her volume of intensity that she was riding at before was, say five hours a week. And then the coach knows that, Hey, we need to work on this aerobic foundation. And then that's all the time she has. What if she just turns that over to five hours a week? And then it's not enough stimulus to cause an adaptive signal and she's not feeling like it's benefiting and that could be valid, but we know that, you know, the aerobic base is necessary. So is that enough? That's a very good question in itself. It brings up 
a question we had from a listener. Uh, Ashley from Sherbrooke, Quebec, had something that relates really well to this. So why don't I read that question now? And, and this opens the door for the question to be applied to any age group, really. She writes, how long do aerobic rides need to be to get benefits? And does this change throughout the season or as I improve as a cyclist from season to season? Big question. Who, uh, Daniel, do you want to start Start with that one? Yeah, I I'm, I'm, can't claim to know the answer to this, but I think it's very individualized based on where the person is coming from because you have to think of where their current fitness is, their goals, where they're at in the season, if they have a, a existing block of intensity or where they're at thinking now, maybe off season, it could be somebody coming in. So the, the short answer would be more than what they're currently doing. And that's kind of like the, well, duh. Um, but the maybe more complex answer is I think it would be what it, what sufficiently or what effectively will deplete uh, energy substrates like their glycogen stores to cause some adaptive signals or also fatigue motor units and, and muscle fibers to where they're actually getting that signal from type one fibers to the intermediate fibers to start kind of coming into the mix. And that's different for everybody. So I think that's maybe the more complex answer. <laughs> I fully agree. This is a highly individual thing. You have to look at what they have been doing and as you said, obviously increase it, but you have to be careful about how much you increase. So if the longest ride somebody's ever done is two hours, you don't say go out and do a six hour ride. Sure. It'll kill them. Also, that's going to vary from, as, as the question asked, from season to season and throughout the season. So, for example, in season, six-hour ride for me, that's just fun. You know, I just started training two months ago. The longest ride I'd done was about three and a half hours. I went out for a six-hour ride on Saturday and barely made it home because mm -hmm. I wasn't ready for a six-hour ride. Yeah. Uh, within a month or two, it'd be no problem. So... You have to kind of gauge where where you are at, what you've been doing, and increase a little bit, but not in giant jumps. The best indicator, we've talked about this a ton, but the best indicator that I have seen personally is looking for that cardiac drift. If you watch your heart rate enough, like so if you don't have a power meter and you're out for a ride and all of a sudden just feels like your heart rate's really high or you're trying to maintain a heart rate and you're just feeling like you're starting to slog and slow down, but it's that point where you start to see that drift. So power plummets relative to heart rate or you, or you just slow down and you go, okay, I'm starting to fatigue a bit. And I usually say 30 to 45 minutes after that point is about the right length. And I'm going to correct you. It's cardiovascular drift that we're talking about Thank here. We you. just did an entire episode on it. And so check that, that out. Was the, Chris had something to offer. <laughs> I did. I did. So ingrained in our habits to call it something. <laughs> yeah. As an editor, you know, that's my, that's my role here. Ryan, are, are you going to call me out for that every time now? Well, I mean, no, because cardiac drift is easier to say. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I go, with, I could say CV drift. drift. Yes. yes. And I have a, maybe to bounce something off of Ryan here, because obviously we worked in the lab together and I think he even trained me on a lot of the stuff in metabolic testing and stuff. So I've been getting back into that personally lately. And I tried to pull some data to when thinking about this, and I know it's a, maybe an N of two, but I've tested a, a couple athletes. And when I started looking at this was seeing what their, what their fuel utilization is. And so a prescription for one person may be different than another. So whenever I look down into the details of like from the research there shows to be a 50% reduction in say glycogen stores 
is where people typically start sensing somewhat of a bonk. And maybe we don't want to go there, but I was just using that number. So it's like if somebody has, you know, 400 to 500 grams of stored glycogen, then they need to get through about half of that um, to, to sense us some, some idea of, of bonk. So they're depleting their energy stores. And so whenever I started doing the math and looking at the differences of training status between a couple people in their lab results, and I, I only chiseled out and looked at like their zone two uh, steady state power within the, the ramping metabolic test. And it was like the difference between like three kilocalories per minute versus seven kilocalories per minute for carbohydrate oxidation and how that related to grams per minute was one gram and 1.9 grams per minute. So with it, within these two individuals looking at it, one being more trained than the other, it's almost double. So it's like for that lesser trained individual, they may have to ride significantly longer. And when I did it to the duration, it was a little over three hours um, for one person and a little over two hours for the other to, to basically get up through about 50% of that. And obviously it's not taking into account like what fuel they're taking in and that stuff. And we're not wanting people to bonk per se, but using that as a reference point, like the prescription is very different depending on somebody's fuel oxidation rates to actually achieve that goal. So that's the individualization of coaching is very important there because if you give somebody a three hour ride thinking this will do, do the necessary, you know, damage we need to get a, an adaptive signal, it may for one and may overdo it for the other kind of deal, if that makes sense. But I like the idea of um, using the heart rate or the cardiovascular drift that Trevor mentioned, because usually from the understanding I have is, the when your body starts switching over to rely on a little bit more of another fuel source or the less efficient muscle fibers come into play then those uh then those chemoreceptors in the body that that drive the breathing frequency and the heart rate and stuff like that signal an increase in that cardiovascular output and so that is something where it's like get to that point and then go over hopefully you take into account hydration and those kinds of things but I think it's a great way to start bringing in the data from from physiological testing to try and get some estimates of, of essentially ride time and how to fuel those. So it makes sense. I mean, having measured glycogen with ultrasound in the past, I mean, we see that stores for people are all they can be all over the map. You know, so there's there's definitely some estimates we have to make. There's equations where you can you know make some assumptions. But yeah, measuring it, it can be all over the map. But I think looking at it here with uh, doing a metabolic test and just seeing, yeah, does this person have essentially a higher burn rate, lower burn rate? I think it can give you good insight, and it's a great way to apply the data to help start that fueling process and individualize it. And then when they're done with the ride, you'll probably get feedback. I mean, if you fueled both people exactly the same, you'd probably get different feedback from the one who's more highly trained versus the one who's not. And and then it would reinforce those results likely. Well, another topic we could probably talk about endlessly, but let's move on to our next question. It's uh, from Danielle from Monument, Colorado. This is a, a, a very good question with a few different parts here. Does aerobic output after intensity still have the same effect? Or does it have an even bigger effect due to substrate depletion and muscle fiber recruitment change? How does this change how I plan my training rides? So lots of stuff to unpack there. Daniel, do you want to start with this? I think of this as kind of like a a double whammy approach because it comes from two sides of the the physiological system and the psychological component Um, because the the specificity of this type of 
uh, question, like say, if you do an aerobic ride and then tack on the intensity at the end, it is more challenging um, from the standpoint of physically and psychologically. And so some people don't like doing that. So I think it, it has to be taken. I think it is very effective one um, and use it specifically um, because maybe later in season, whenever the, the athlete is more developed and more fit, then they're more capable to to tackle this, but if they haven't done the work when they're fresh and they don't see the repeatability of say the interval work or the threshold or sub threshold work, then throwing this at them of upfront may just crush them mentally and physically. But the way I see it is if you start out with the aerobic and ramp into it, it kind of goes into the literature of the fast start versus slow start. If you go out of the gate and prime what I consider priming your, your systems a little bit with a really hard effort, then the research has shown to, basically utilize glycogen and your, your stored sugars a little bit more during that outing in that session than if you would ramp into the effort. So there's no reason to go full gas from the gun and basically prime it unless you're just trying to be time crunched. So doing it at the end allows you to kind of work on those um, aerobic engine. And then while you're fatigued, once you have some kilojoules logged, then doing it. But the tough thing is, is you actually see obviously not your, personal best, your PBs. And that's hard for some people. And that's a psychological point, but, uh, in riding with a, a world tour pro from down here in Colorado Springs once said, it's not your, it's not your 20 minute power that matters. It's your 20 minute power after several thousands of kilojoules of work that matters because that's what, when the races are won. So it's like when you can make it to the end. And so that would be the reason to do these later in the season and develop some of that psychological tenacity and grit and resiliency. Because if you can get past the point as an athlete to say, um, I may not hit my best power, but it's going to give me the best adaptive signal. And I also got the aerobic work in prior. So I have more muscular endurance. I have more aerobic uh, foundations until I hit these, but I may not see my best powers and that may be okay. And as long as that's conveyed to the athlete and they understand that, uh, that should be coached into them, into their brain a little bit to make sure that they're okay with that. Trevor, I know you like to do this to yourself a lot. I, I assume that you would agree with what Daniel's just said, not every ride, but certainly, the, you know, at the end of a long training block, you would do certain things leading up to the big ride at the end. And that big ride would start off at a you know, a certain amount of, or you'd base it off of certain power or heart rate or whatever. But at the end, you'd basically just drill yourself into the ground and add the intensity as much as possible at the end. Do I have that? Do I have that right? Is that applicable to this conversation or is that a totally different thing? No, you'd actually be surprised. I don't do a ton of that specifically. I actually really had to pro con this one. First, I think I need to give you my bias I've expressed this before, but I'm a big believer when you do a ride, you really target one or two energy systems. I'm mm -hmm. not a big believer in hit as many energy systems as you can on a ride. So I tend with my athletes to say, get your warm up, get the work done, go home, whatever the purpose of that ride is. So if we do want to really hit the aerobic energy system, that's the, yeah, go out for a long time. Um, I'll even in season say, Go out for five, six hour ride, but hit a hill first, do a little bit of damage and then work on the aerobic side. But if an athlete's going out and doing intervals, I generally just say, do the intervals, come home. But it was a really interesting question. So I gave it some thought and, and pro-conned it. And the pros to this that I see are you're going to have more fiber cycling. So you've done some damage to your muscle fibers. Um, when fibers are fresh, 
and you're going easy, you're just going to use your, your type 1 muscle fibers. When there's some damage, when there's some fatigue, one of the ways your muscles deal with that is start cycling fibers. So giving all the fibers a little kind of micro rest, which means you're going to force your 2A fibers to start working aerobically, which is a good thing. Uh, another pro is there's going to be a greater strain in homeostasis, so theoretically you're going to get a greater training stimulus. Those are my two pros. The cons, you're probably going to be close to glycogen depleted or, or have a lot of your glycogen, uh, as, as you were saying, Dan, probably getting towards that 50% of your glycogen depleted. So you're going to start relying on other fuels. So again, that's now you're, you're getting into truly different energy systems, and some of those fuels your body doesn't like to use, uh, and that will really affect your recovery. So ultimately what I looked at as the big con is there's going to be a, a much bigger negative impact on your recovery. Then the questions become, are the gains worth the greater cost? And ultimately the answer I landed on is, Probably periodically. I would not be doing this after every intensity session, but there's probably a value in doing that uh, every once in a while. You know, initially with this question, my mind went to in long endurance events and, you know, being able to produce power, you know, late in the ride like that, you know, and having having seen different um, power files, heart rate files, you know, from long events in the past, you know, I see some of the most successful riders still being able to produce a fairly high percentage of, of that threshold hours hours into the game, you know, and, and, uh, and I agree, this is something mentally, it's pretty challenging. So it's not something that, that I would do consistently, but I would insert it in specific times to prepare for particular events. And, you know, and yeah, when you do this, then you have to make sure the recovery is accounted for. So, I mean, I've used this in the past with, um, athletes preparing for that, that long gravel race in Kansas. And, you know, I've gone around uh, Boulder, you know, six hours, seven hours on the flats. They'd go out east, up north, and then come back into town and hit the foothills. And we'd do, um, you know, some some pretty considerable climbing at a very controlled effort late in the ride. And uh, that seemed to work really well. And it's something, of course, as long as you build in the recovery, now they can get that feel for, okay, what are my legs like at this point? What can I actually do? how do I need to fuel? And then really just that grit, how do I need to get myself through this knowing that, you know, this is sort of a, a taste of what a, a long distance race like that might, might actually feel like. If I can segue off that, um, maybe we're done, but the utilization, I would say is very specific, uh, because it's not something in, in utilizing this and coaching across the board. Uh, it's very frequent, but like similar to what Ryan said is for specific events like Leadville or the the Kansas gravel event, those kinds of things, because, you know, for Leadville, as an example, if you hit some of those climbs coming back inbound after 50, 60 miles, you have to be able to produce appreciable power after you've done an appreciable amount of work. And so that's where doing it later in there, it's like, if you can settle into sweet spot or, you know, even tempo at that, in, at that point in the duration that you've already completed, it's very, very important to to know what that feels like <laughs> as well as uh, be able to try to do it because, and the other part, I think it segues away to some of the other questions we've answered is like, it, maybe it's a way to get a little bit more to make sure that somebody does the aerobic work necessary to f work on the aerobic side of things, but then still do that cycling that Trevor mentioned of the different fibers to get a compounding benefit. Um, and as long as you know, the, 
if you plan in the recovery that obviously you, you tacked on a big effort at the end, like a spike, what sometimes I call it the nail in the coffin. Like you do a bunch of work and then you go do a hard effort at the end um, or a bookend ride where it's like at the end of the ride, you book in this with a, a hard climb. Um, it worked very well. And I can relate it to the example that Chris said. It's like, I did this personally and with several athletes in that, that you're training for dirty Kansas or the unbound gravel. And uh, it was very effective because whenever I went off course in that race, unfortunately went from, you know, first and second place to 17 miles off course, caught Rebecca rush and turned her around and we got back on course and was able to set the KOM and the QOM for the last 50 miles, just trying to catch back up with the field. Um, that was the year she won, but it was like still having that power to push hard in the last 50 miles was like, okay, I did the work late in these rides in, a, in that aerobic sense. And I think that was one of the type of training methods that, that paid off a little bit. All right. Let's turn our uh, attention to this question from Dan Swenson. It uh, talks about the cumulative effects of supplements. So more into the nutrition realm here. Here's what he wrote. He has a question about re, uh, nutritional effects of the flavonoids in dark chocolates and the nitrates in beetroot. Are the effects of these type of supplements cumulative, i.e., if you do them together, do you get a greater buffering effect than taking more of either of them in isolation? Ryan? I, I wanted to uh, look into this one a little bit deeper because of that that uh, combination question. You know, I mean, we know individually both of these have positive effects you know, on, on, on circulation and, um, and health. So, but yeah, it's a great question of, can we, can we have them build on one another? So there was, I found one study that was cited a few times in other summary articles and, uh, it looked at this combined ingestion and it went out from, you know, rest to, I think they went all the way out to four hours and, uh, they did find that there was an effect within the first hour. So there was a bit of a timing with this one. And what they looked at was was flow mediated dilation is what it's called. So so uh, this is something regularly used to look at that flow within the blood vessels. And of course, if it's if it's enhanced, then that's that really would be indicative of of you know good flow, good health um, outcomes. Um, so they did find that there was an increase after this first hour, but beyond that, everything went back to baseline by the fourth hour. So so there was overall in this study a positive outcome for that. They did find that with, I think it was, let me see if I can get this right. <laughs> so when the cocoa flavanols were ingested after, they did find that there was a change in the NO production, that nitric oxide production, um, because they also measured, they measured nitric oxide production a, a few different ways. And they found that there was actually a little bit less produced and we may have actually expelled more with this, this, uh, this dual consumption here. So, so I think it's still in the end, this study showed in one measurement of this flow mediated, flow mediated dilation, there was an enhancement, but there was also um, a change in, in sort of the the metabolism of this. And then, you know, some other uh, studies that, that looked at this, I, I couldn't find a ton, maybe three or four in total, but they were still sort of like, eh, the jury is out. We need, we need to better understand the mechanism of it and to, uh, to see if this actually works. So maybe. 
And just uh, just to chime in here, I should have mentioned when I led into the question, for those of you who want to n- learn a little bit more about supplements generally, chocolate, uh, beetroot, uh, pickle juice, I think we also touched upon. There, We did an episode on this, episode 65, Debunking Supplements, What Works and What Doesn't. So check out that episode. Trevor, I know you will have some thoughts here too. What What do you think? A cumulative effect? Skip supplements altogether? What would you say? <laughs> well... So obviously, you know my bias. I'm sure. not a supplement guy. I'm generally against, or, or uh, I, I believe in keeping them limited. So, for example, I believe in our last episode, we talked about all of our goals for the upcoming season. I talked about how uh, I want to go and do, a, at the age of 50, I want to go and do a pro race. Uh, we've read the research on beetroots and chocolate and how they help performance and Knowing that, knowing the health performance, knowing my goal, I still would rather sit on my couch and pick the belly button lint out of my belly button than bother <laughs> to go buy some beetroot juice. You're going to eat chocolate and you know it, but that's just... But that has thing. nothing to do with I these know. studies. I know. So, as long as it's an eight-pound bar of chocolate in one day, right? Uh, yes. <laughs> right. That is going to be one of my goals for this season. <laughs> uh, so go or go home. Yes. <laughs> I tried to do some research on this. I actually looked up on PubMed anything that had both beetroot and chocolate. came up with six studies. There is one, beetroot improves oxidative stability and functional process uh, properties of processed foods, singular and combined with uh, effects with chocolate. So basically, if you want to improve your shelf life, then yes, both of the, the combination of the two is better, so you can sit on the shelf at the grocery store and still be fresh and tasty. Uh, that's really the only study I found of the, the combination of the two. Uh, the found a couple things, you know, one talking about the effects of nitrates, and I'll just read what they have in, in one part of this uh, review. Um, For example, while it is known that supplementation with approximately 5 to 9 millimoles of nitrates per day for uh, for 1 to 15 days can elicit favorable effects on the physiological responses to exercise, the dose-response relationship is yet to be established. It should be emphasized that 5 to 9 millimoles nitrate can easily be consumed within the normal diet. Uh, and there is presently no evidence that additional nitrate intake produces greater benefits. So again, where I'm going to head with this is avoid that more is better, which is kind of what I'm hearing in this question of, oh, this is beneficial, that's beneficial. Let's add a ton of both, and I'm just going to absolutely be killing it. Uh, Another review that I found called Impact of Dietary Antioxidants on Sports Performance, a review, Uh, says the effects of addition of polyphenols and other components to beetroot juice was trivial but unclear. Other food-derived polyphenols indicate a range of performance outcomes from a large improvement to moderate impairment. Uh, Talks about some of the specifics and then says, however, chronic intake of most antioxidants have a harmful effect on performance. Hmm. So this is the... No real evidence that combining them or more is better. Um, some evidence that, yes, it helps in moderate quantities. Also some evidence that it can be, in the long run, detrimental. Yeah, and one thing I can add to, to this um, 
this study that I found is, you know, they actually didn't use supplements in this one. They used apples and spinach to get those two, those two sources. And so, yeah, really what I was able to take away from this is that, you know, eat your fruits and veggies daily, <laughs> try to get mm-hmm. a variety of them. And then, yeah, then you, you don't run a big risk of, of any, you know, overconsumption, you know, any toxicity, and you're likely to get some sort of benefit from these. And it doesn't have to be complicated. Right. Daniel, anything to add to this? Yeah, I think kind of the same way. Maybe maybe I'm a, more of a cynic like Trevor, um, that there's, to me, this speaks to almost like the compounding of marginal gains, where if all of these things claim to get, you know, 1% here, 3% there, if you try to combine them all, then we would all be, you know, world tour pros. But that, that's not the way it worked. We're not going to get 20% better by getting an aero helmet and aero socks and drinking beetroot and combining it with cocoa. But I think the the take home is is what, uh, Ryan stated was eating, eating the right foods and putting those in your d- daily diet. Because I think there's so many things going back to maybe previous fast talk episodes of, um, if you're getting the right nutrition or is it nourishing your body? Is it just a fancy, um, sports nutrition that's marketed to make money? Or is it something that's getting, giving you a real benefit? And part of that is if, if you're putting that undue stress by trying to figure out the right dosage, the timing, how to, eat it before, combine it with things or eat it after to get the right, the right effects. That to me is just more cumulative stress on your system. And something as an athlete is wasted bandwidth that it should be focused on the, the fundamentals. And so if you're, if it's not well, well documented by now, not to say it, it couldn't be, I've always looked to progress and find different ways, but I'm not looking for necessarily quick hacks, but more focus on the fundamentals. And so that's get the right foods because it could be arugula, spinach, those kinds of things to get more nutrients versus an isolated supplement that also have their, their coenzymes and things that go along with that, the fibers, all that stuff. So I'm not a huge fan of overly supplementation, even though I have taken beetroot supplement and stuff like that, but I'd much rather just shave one on a salad and get it as a combination of real food. Yeah. Just call me cynical. He did just call you cynical. I I would like to be a cynic (laughs) on on the concept. Oh, it was very positive. You get a much longer shelf life. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's take on one last question. This one comes from Jeff Pugsley. I'm not sure if you guys will actually have an answer to this. It's kind of a tech question. Do you know if WHOOP can ignore or tolerate or take into account PVCs, preventricular contractions? PVCs are pretty common in the population. I started getting them about two years ago, writes Jeff. I do get more PVCs when I have more stress, but it doesn't seem to have a great correlation with exercise, more so with life stress and caffeine intake. Trevor, I I think I will start with you only because you wear a whoop, and um, I know you've investigated how it works and a little bit about that. So what would you say to Jeff here? Here, I I went back to my old ECG course, and a PVC is a premature atopic stimulus that originates in the ventricles. Makes it clear, right? Sure. So the better explanation here is every time your heart beats, there's various phases. So there's a kind of a quiet phase where blood flows back passively into the heart. Uh, it initially fills up the, the atria, which are the smaller um, chambers at the top of your heart. Then the atria pump contract which pushes that blood into the ventricles, 
then the ventricles contract and that pushes the blood out of the heart. So there's kind of a natural flow or natural process to this. And a PVC is just when the ventricles get, for a variety of reasons, uh, impatient and don't wait for that whole process. And they beat before they're supposed to. So before the atria have, have, have pumped the blood into the ventricles. Yeah, and some people will describe these or they'll, they'll describe them as the sensation of uh, a skipped beat or a flutter or something like this. It's a benign, typically a very benign uh, arrhythmia. Yep. It's just out of rhythm, the heart. Now, what's important here, when you look at that line, that, that classic line showing the heartbeat where you get these little spikes, mm -hmm. each of those spikes has a, a letter associated with it to describe that, that component. So the component from when the ventricle pumps is your, your QRS component. So basically, in a PVC, you lose the QRS or you get a very wide QRS. When you measure heart rate variability, you are measuring the length of time between the R components. So it would be the R to R interval. Seen as in a PVC, you don't have an R a lot of the time. I think the WHOOP would be looking at this going, uh, what just happened? Mm -hmm. Probably wouldn't quite know what to do. So what you would probably see in the WHOOP is just some really odd heart rate variability would be my guess. But the WHOOP is not designed to actually measure when you're getting PVCs. The background I have with this was I got really into measuring heart rate variability. And so somehow after recording with four different apps to understand it better, so I could utilize it with athletes, I got on the uh, a call with the, the CTO of one of the major companies and they were like, wow, you have four years of data for four different devices. And so we went into detail and kind of geeked out about it. And the, the, at the time, the devices that were measuring it anywhere, but from the heart rate straps or uh, basically measuring on opposing side of your heart, they weren't validating. And I've seen stuff since then that actually has validated some of those as far as like within a confidence ratio. Um, but at the time, that was one of the things of basically because what it's called when it's, you know, like a whoop or a wrist-based smartwatch or something like that. And I'll try to pronounce this correctly is photoplasmography, which is basically identifying the heart rate from emitting light and the changes in the, basically the refraction from within your skin and may, may, may or may not have that right. But if, essentially it's just shining a little light in and trying to get where it's oxygenated blood and when it's not. And so when you're doing that from your wrist or some device that's not actually tracking those those R to R beats, that's why there's only certain devices that can be used and are validated to do it with um, HRV. And I, since then, I've seen some devices like the new Apple Four and the Whoop does it for the R to R intervals for heart rate variability. But specific to this, I did a little research and did find some things from like you know four or five articles from 2015 to even a current one. Of, of 2020. Um, and it said like the title of this was premature atrial and ventricular contraction detection using photoplasmography data from a smartwatch. And the, the things I pulled from that were that they've developed an algorithm that is within the confidence um, scale that can measure it. The only thing I, I wasn't able to pull out from it was if the whoop specifically does it, does it, they actually used a Samsung watch that was a, you know, a 
three or four hundred dollar U.S. Uh, watch um, that would do it. But the things they noted was it had to be a very uh, snug fit and controlled because there were more errors that they had to basically wipe out or correct in the readings. And they actually found better confidence in the smartphone uh, app to where you actually put the the light up to your fingertip. There's actually some uh, apps that you can actually put them directly up to your fingertip and hold it there. And as long as there's a good seal, I guess, and I say that with air quotes, basically a good seal on the, the camera or the actual light onto your fingertip, it actually was giving better and less errors than the actual smartwatch itself. So there is some data out there that shows that they are coming out with these algorithms. The only thing I couldn't pull out if it was specific to Whoop or not. So that would maybe be a, a more of a Whoop question. But my take on it is if you're not getting the actual readings from your, your chest, from the side to side beats and what's going on there, it's not as um, easy to pull out those errors. So. Oh, that makes for another episode of Fast Talk. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as well. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our growing education and coaching community. For Trevor Connor, Ryan Kohler, and Daniel Matheny, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening.